0: Um, you know, this is not a, this is not going to be like a normal Sunday. In fact, after the Sunday is over, some of you are going to ask, is he always this somber? Like, no. Uh, but I, I, I don't have any jokes in me. This was a very heavy week. How many of y'all kind of felt heavy this last week? I mean, of course it's veterans day weekend. So there's that. But then uh, I'm I'm pretty sure most of you have felt, unfortunately, this creeping rot in our civilization. And uh, I'm pretty sure every single one of you in this room has at least heard about, if not seen, if not become, unfortunately, obsessed with what was going on in Uvalde this last week. I, I saw, and I, I tried not to I just tune out. Didn't watch the news, but I knew it was going on, and my mind kept gravitating back there. And then, of course, I heard that a couple of days after one of the teachers was murdered, the husband died of a heart attack. Just grief killed him. Just a horrible, horrible thing. And as I was uh, thinking ab- about the events surrounding Uvalde, I couldn't help but think about this one passage in particular: Proverbs chapter six, verses sixteen through nineteen. The Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to Him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. There's just something particularly galling about murder and especially galling about the murder of Children. The the scripture tells us in Psalm uh, one twenty seven that that children are a, are a gift from the Lord. They're a heritage from the Lord. They're a, a gift, a reward. Some translations say from from God. I, I heard a lot of comments this last week. You probably did too, because you were watching this stuff. And but I, I thought the one that was most on point came from Russell Brand. He's not a politician. He's He's just a commentator of sorts, not not really a believer in any classic sense, but he said something I thought was really good. He encouraged his followers on social media to try not to jump so quickly to a bunch of simplistic solutions. He said, don't do that because here's what we do as human beings. We have a tendency to blame. I'm going to blame the fatherlessness. Or blame the violent videos or blame the drug-addicted mothers or or blame the media or, you know, maybe we should just blame the fact that we got too many guns or maybe there weren't enough guns or we blame not appropriate gun regulations or maybe not enough enforcement of the gun regulations that we have or we'll blame the law enforcement or we'll blame the lack of law enforcement support. Or maybe we'll just start blaming poverty. And on and on and on and on all the blame goes. And he says, let's just pause for a second and notice something. Have you not noticed that there is this horrific, creeping, pervasive something? Like we have just absolutely lost our way. In a society like this, and especially when you think about children being killed way before they had an opportunity to live out their lives and be productive as people created in the image of God, you just, you just have to think, well look, in a society that is so banal and so nihilistic and so empty, where there's so much focus on rationalism and materialism and we're here for a little while and you live your life and then you, and then you die, haven't we just lost Something sacred. It's like the sacred has gone missing. I could put it like this. It's like the, the ground note is off and so no matter where you put your fingers, it just doesn't sound right. If the foundation isn't where it needs to be, you can do all the little manipulations and address all the little problems and it, it's just not gonna be right. It's just, just, let's just notice something. The sacred has gone missing from our culture. I think he's right on this. Now, we know as believers, and I want to suggest that I I know because here's what the Bible tells us. The the Bible tells us there are, are three sacred foundational things that we ought to be holding on to. Some things I think that have gone missing or at least are going missing in our culture. One is this consistent pervasive belief that there is a God who is our creator and who is love. The second thing that I think is at least going missing, if not gone, is this pervasive, consistent conviction that we bear the image of this God. That we as human beings are sacred because we bear the image of our God who is a creator and who is love. And then the third thing that I think has gone missing is just this conviction that as people who are in the image of God, we ought to live magnificent lives of love and creativity before our God who is a loving creator of all. The Bible teaches this very foundationally in the very first chapter. The scripture tells us in, in Genesis chapter one, verse 27 that he created us in his image. In his image he made them male and female. He created them in his image. The, the Bible elaborates on this a little bit later in Psalm chapter 8 verses 5 and 6. Let me read this for you. You made man a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. Believing all of this makes a huge difference. And I would hope that we could recapture the sacredness of God and the sacredness of humanity and the sacredness of life. Because when the sacred is desacralized, what do you have left? I want us to be thinking about this, especially in terms of us being made in the image of God and what that means and how we've lost it and how we need to regain it and how Jesus is the answer. I want you to be thinking about these things as we watch this uh, quick little six-minute video. It it just does such a good job of pulling out the theology. And at this time, I'd also like our ushers to come forward because during the the playing of the video, we're going to go ahead and take that offering. But let's go ahead and take the offering
1: and, and play the video. So if you lived in ancient Bible times,
2: odds are you lived under the authority of a king. And many of these kings claimed that they were oh. gods, and they would even call themselves the image of God.
1: Meaning they had authority to tell people what to do, order things to be made.
2: Yeah, they got to define good and evil. And these kings would often make statues of themselves, which in Hebrew were called selim often translated as idol or image.
1: But for Israel, they didn't view their kings as... God. In fact, they were never supposed to even make images of God.
2: That's exactly right, and that was really unique for that time and culture. This is rooted, first of all, in Israel's belief that you can't reduce the Creator God down to any one thing in creation. But there's another reason. People aren't to make images of God because God has already made images of Himself.
1: When did He do that?
2: Let's go to page one of the Bible, and the first person we meet there is God. He's the one with authority over all creation. He speaks and creation obeys, and he defines what is good and not good. In other words, he alone is king. But then surprisingly, as the pinnacle of all of God's creative work, he makes humans, and he calls all of them the image of God.
1: So he gives all humans the authority to rule.
2: Exactly, that's what he goes on to say. He tells the humans to subdue the earth and to rule it. And so this task that once belonged only to elite kings is here in the Bible the task of every human being. This was a revolutionary statement in its day because all humans are being called to rule and to participate in the human project. So what does this mean? I mean, how are we all supposed to rule? So the picture we get in Genesis is gardening. Gardening? Yes. Gardening. so they rule the earth by cultivating it by harnessing all of the earth's raw potential and then making something more and new out of it so
1: growing food for each other
2: yes but that also includes growing families then which become neighborhoods and then they create communities where people are going to work and take care of each other and build businesses and cities that will expand to new places and so on so
1: ruling is really the day-to-day acts of Our work and creativity.
2: Yes, we take the world somewhere. This is humanity's divine and sacred task. Yeah, and this all sounds really nice. And humans have designed some pretty
1: great things. But, just as often we create things that cause a lot of
2: suffering and a lot of injustice. So maybe we shouldn't actually be ruling. Yeah, so the Bible addresses this. In Genesis, what happens is that God gives humans a choice about how they're going to rule. So are they going to use their authority for the benefit of others, which is God's definition of good, or are they going to turn away and define good and evil for themselves and use their authority for self-advantage?
1: And in the story, they choose to define good and evil on their own terms.
2: And so this is the Bible's depiction of the human condition. So sometimes we pull off amazingly good stuff, but just as often, despite our best intentions, we act selfishly and we create evil in the world.
1: And so we're stuck as mediocre rulers making a mess of things.
2: But that's not the end of the story. So the Bible goes on and it makes this claim that all of this was resolved when God bound himself to humanity through Jesus. And he showed us what it looks like to truly rule as a human.
1: So what does it look like?
2: Well, Jesus ruled by serving and by seeking the best for others, by putting himself underneath them and loving not just his friends, but also his enemies.
1: And that's not a typical way to rule.
2: And not only that, Jesus confronted the consequences of all the evil and the death that we have created by our messed up ways of ruling. And he takes it. I mean, he lets it kill him. And so when the New Testament writers looked back to Jesus' resurrection, they see a whole new future opening up for all humanity.
1: Jesus is a new way to be human.
2: Yeah, that's why they called Jesus the image of God or the new human. And not only that, they also believe that Jesus' divine life and power is now available to heal and to transform us to become our life and power. And this sounds really nice, but what does it really look like? So... Practically, the Apostle Paul said it looks like people being filled by Jesus' own presence and spirit, filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and integrity and gentleness and self-control. He says... This is the new humanity that God wants to create in us so that we become people in whom God's image is being restored, people who will move the human project forward. And that's actually how the story of the Bible ends. It's a renewed world where God is on his throne and his servants are all around him, but they're the ones ruling over this new world, taking it into new, uncharted territory with Jesus as their healer and their guide.
0: some of us uh, may be wondering, okay, so why why are we spending any time talking about saving the lives of children? Why are we talking about spending, especially saving the lives of little children still in their mother's wombs? Well, I mean, just to, you know, when you just ask the question, doesn't that almost sort of answer it? I mean, we do live in a society where unfortunately there are a number of people who believe that forcefully and prematurely ending the life of a human being that God is knitting together in his or her mother's womb is just morally, a morally neutral decision. Now, as believers, we recognize, hey, wait a second, life is sacred. Human life is sacred. We've been created in the image of God. And, and what that means is that we were intended to live these majestic lives as royalty, as kings and queens ruling the earth, but in a particular way that reflects God. We know that God is love and so if we are reflecting that image we're going to be loving and don't you think that probably the purest form of love that there is is the love between a parent and a child and then when you think but we're also supposed to reflect the image of our creator God which is creativity not creating ex nihilo out of nothing but taking the things that God has made and creating them in such a way that produces life and and flourishing in this world and And don't you think that when it comes to what we can create, the most majestic or maybe even the most magical creative act that God has given to us is the ability to have children, to bring more people into this world who are image bearers, who will fill the earth with the glory of God with additional love and creative energy. And so when you start thinking about it in terms of the image of God and the grander scope, it's pretty hard to think about anything that could be i don't know a more double double desolation on on the one hand you have the the mother who is denying the intent and the calling and the the way in which god intended for us to live as lovers and as creators and then on the other hand of course you have the ending of a of a human life that again god the bible says is knitting together in the mother's womb it's it's a, it's a, it's a double tragedy. And where does the tragedy come from? And you know this because you hear the language and you hear the discussions. Where does the tragedy comes from? It comes from the choice. See, you've been given a choice and I've been given a choice. In the beginning, there's Adam and Eve and they have this choice in the garden to either live in accordance with the design of God, to allow God to be the one to define good and evil and to use their royal authority in the way God intended for it to be used for the benefit of others and for future generations. Or they could choose to define good and evil for themselves and then use their authority for their own particular purposes without a thought to future implications or to others. Now, just because people make a choice doesn't mean it's always a good choice. In fact, the choice that Adam and Eve make in the garden has incredibly negative, horrific implications, not only for themselves, but for future generations and the entire culture and world of which they're a part. So again, the question is, how how could I, how could you, how could we as believers not pay attention to saving the lives of children? Really. Fortunately, we do have organizations that, that do all kinds of different things. And one of the organizations that I like is the Texas Right to Life. And what they do is they'll spend a certain amount of, of energy, a certain amount of resources so as to safeguard the, the legal rights of the, the pre-born. And uh, we actually have someone in our church family who is a part of the Texas uh, Right to Life uh, her name is Rebecca Parma, and I've actually invited Rebecca to come up here and share a little bit with you about what's going on in our nation, what's going on in our state, so that we can be better informed in terms of what is it that we could do and how is it that we could pray. And I think this is really important. Now, I, I want to tell you, until this morning, Rebecca had never talked in a church before, and I told her, don't worry. Uh, it's like talking to your church family because it is your church family. But just understand that brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles can be really, really cruel. But not here. Okay, okay. So if you, and you know, you've got to understand this is not a, an easy subject to talk about, right? I mean, how many of y'all want to be up here talking about this? Probably not. Uh, so she's got a really difficult job. And I hope you appreciate that. And I hope you appreciate... I hope you appreciate her willingness to be here just to share a little bit more about what she does and just kind of what's going on. It's been in the news a lot lately. If you would, please welcome uh, Rebecca Pharma up here to share with us. There we go. Number two. You got it? It should be on.
3: Okay. Hi. Morning, church family. Um, I'm grateful to be with you this morning. Um, I'm really grateful to come to a church that values human life and is willing to talk about these issues, and to Pastor Ernest for leading us in this and just giving me some time to talk to you this morning. Um, As he said, my name is Rebecca Parma, and I am the Senior Legislative Associate at Texas Right to Life. In case you're not familiar with our organization, Texas Right to Life is the oldest and largest pro-life organization in the state. And since 1973, we have been working through legislation and education to protect the rights of the pre-born, um, the sick, the elderly, the vulnerable, and people with disabilities through legal, peaceful, and prayerful means. And so I'm on our legislative team, which means that I help um, research and draft and lobby pro-life bills in the Texas Capitol in Austin. Um, But right now, the Texas legislature is not in session, and what that means is that um, where our focus and our anticipation and our expectation is right now is um, on the Supreme Court, and what they're going to decide later this year regarding abortion and potentially overturning Roe v. Wade. Um, But I want to start by reading a verse that I know we're all familiar with, from Psalm 139, verses 13 through 15. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. So we know from Scripture, right, that the value placed on human life because we're image bearers um, in the image of God. Um, And we know from science that the preborn child is a human being from that very first moment of fertilization, when there is a new, unique, individual person. Um, And so if we know these things and we believe these things, we cannot support abortion because abortion is a very undoing of that knitting and weaving that God describes in Psalm 139. No matter the size, the level of development, the location or the level of dependency, all human beings are are worthy of our moral attention and of our legal protection because they're made in God's image. And when we devalue life in the womb, um, ultimately it leads to a devaluing of all innocent human life. Um, So too often when we are talking about this issue, um, it's framed as pitting the rights of women against the rights of children. Um, And I reject that dichotomy because I don't think we should and we do not need to pit these two groups of women and their children against each other. Um, another thing we often hear, right, is, uh, this, this issue, this debate framed in the terms of a right to choose. Um, but whenever, uh, our organization hears these, these kinds of, um, comments or debates or, um, arguments, really, we always want to bring it back to what is the preborn child, right? She is a human being made in God's image. And what is abortion? It's destroying that child. Um, also, I want to recognize this is a hard topic, and so I, I don't, uh, I'm do not i not here this morning to condemn. I just want to be um, encouraging to you all and to educate a little bit. So towards that end, I know we've all been hearing a lot about the Supreme Court lately in the news and potentially overturning Roe v. Wade. And so what I want to do is talk about what's going on, um, what we are hoping and praying for from the Supreme Court, and then what do we as God's people do in response to this? Um, as people who care about children and care about their mothers and families. So um, to do this, uh that means take a quick quick trip back in history to nineteen seventy three when the Supreme Court overturned or I'm sorry, decided Roe v. Wade. Um, this decision in in handing this decision down, the Supreme Court stripped the states of their authority to protect preborn children, and they invalidated any and all laws on the books in states that did that. And by doing this, they legalized abortion up until the moment of birth for any reason in our country. So when we hear about um, Roe in the news, there's a lot of misconception about what it actually is. I think most people, most Americans think that Roe is something that it's not. Roe provides no protections at all for preborn children. It unjustly devalues a whole class of our human family by fabricating a supposed right to abortion from our Constitution, and the majority of Americans don't support this kind of permissive abortion landscape that Roe has ushered into our country. Now, through later Supreme Court cases, states have had a slightly expanded ability to protect more preborn children, um, but ultimately, this is the this is the status quo right now of legalized abortion for any reason throughout pregnancy up until the moment of birth. Nationally, we do have prohibitions on taxpayer funding of abortion. We do have some limits on the kinds of abortion procedures. But we have no federal time frame or limit for when a woman in the United States can have an abortion. That's why we have uh, our neighbor New Mexico can have abortion until birth um, for any reason without any sort of restrictions or prohibitions um, next door to us in Texas, which is a much more pro-life state. Also, I think when we hear about Roe in the news, um, it feels really, and, and overturning Roe, it feels really um, uh, exaggerated. Um, but when you compare to other states, we are an outlier as a country. So the United States is only one of seven countries that allow abortion up until the moment of birth. Most developed countries have some sort of time limit on when a, a woman can get an abortion. So the other, uh, some of the other seven countries that we are amongst in, in allowing our laws to be this permissive are China, North Korea, and Vietnam. So this is what Roe v. Wade is, and this is why it must be overruled. From 1973 until now, this is the framework that states like Texas that are pro-life have been trying to work within to ban as many abortions as possible, to protect as many pre-born children as possible by passing strong laws and pushing the Supreme Court to overturn and ship away at Roe v. Wade. So that's where we are today. In December of last year, the Supreme Court took up a case from Mississippi called Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. And what this case is about is a Mississippi law that was enacted to prohibit abortion at 15 weeks. So at 15 weeks, right, the pre child can already feel pain, she can smile, she can respond to her mother's voice. Um, and so in, in this case that the Supreme Court took up, the state of Mississippi has explicitly asked the court to overturn Roe v. Wade for the first time since 1973. And so this is the decision that we're awaiting from the Supreme Court right now. This is also why, historically, we have not settled for Roe, right? Because from a biblical perspective, we have to care about this issue because it's taking the lives of those who are made in God's image, and our God cares about life and truth and justice, Um, And so for 50 years, we've been pressing strategically through the judicial process to overturn Roe, which is hopefully and nearly where we are. So we expected that the decision would be released in June, which is usually when controversial cases like this, their decisions are released from the Supreme Court. But I'm sure as you all have seen earlier this month, there was a shocking and unprecedented leak of the majority opinions draft on this case that said that they plan to overturn Roe which is super encouraging and heartening to hear, um, but we can't celebrate just yet because this isn't the final decision. Also uh, worrisome with this unprecedented leak is the fact that it appears it was done with the intention to sway and to intimidate the Supreme Court justices to change their decision in this case. Um, And I'm sure as you all have seen, that intimidation is real and it's really scary. And so at this point, we have to be praying, right? We have to pray for the justices and their families, for their safety, um, pray for their fortitude that they would hold to justice and to um, a God-honoring decision of overturning Roe. But until that final decision is released, we are optimistic, but we have to keep praying. If you could go to the next slide. So, um, okay, so if Roe is overturned, like, what does that mean? Well, first, it does not mean that abortion is immediately made illegal throughout our country. That is not what it means. What it does mean is that the authority to regulate and prohibit abortion goes back to the states, which is how it was before Roe v. Wade and is where that authority belongs, right? Because as we know, this is controversial. Um, It's a highly politicized issue. And so these kind of discussions need to happen in the branch of government most suited to that, which is our legislative branch. so if Roe is overturned and that authority to protect preborn children returns to the states, we expect that about half of the states will prohibit abortion, and that includes Texas. So in Texas, we have our pre-Roe prohibition on abortion still on the books, and then we have a law that will prohibit abortion from the moment of fertilization that will take effect 30 days after Roe is overturned. Now, around Texas, we expect that Louisiana, Arkansas, and Oklahoma will ban abortion. Um, But we also expect that states like New Mexico and Colorado will have highly permissive abortion laws. And that's because, right, I said half the states will probably ban abortion. That means the other half of states will, to some degree, allow abortion, um, including up until birth. Um, And we expect states like California, New York, and New Mexico to become sort of safe havens for abortion. Also, this fight's going to continue at the federal level. Um, in Congress, we'll have to continue protecting against um, codifying abortion up until birth. We'll have to keep pushing for protections for preborn born children, um, because ultimately, even if we ban abortion in Texas and protect our preborn children here, um, if this injustice is happening anywhere, we can't settle for that. And so there's going to continue to be a push to protect all pre-born children in the United States. So this is what we have hoped for and prayed for a post-real world for a long time, um, but now it's here. And so what does that actually mean for us and what is it gonna look like? Well, in Texas, we've already seen a little glimpse of what an abortion-free America could look like because of the Texas Heartbeat Act. Um, if you'll go to the next slide. So this law it was passed last session um, and what it does is prohibits abortion if the baby has a detectable heartbeat, which is at about six weeks. Um, and this law is important because one, it is protecting preborn children and their mothers from abortion, but also because it focuses in on heartbeat. Um, this is a culturally recognizable sign of life, right? It's something we all recognize and can talk to anyone about, and it highlights the humanity of the preborn child and the fact that life resides in the womb. So in the nearly nine months that abortion has been, um, pre- or that the heartbeat law has been in effect, um, it saved over 25,000 preborn Texans from abortion. Now, before this law took effect, there were all kinds of doomsday predictions of what would happen in Texas and to Texas, and what we've seen is none of that has happened. We have been able to protect pre-born children and continue to flourish as a state and show and lead the rest of the country of what a post-Roe U.S. can look like. But prohibiting abortion doesn't mean it will be abortion-free, and it doesn't mean that abortion is going to be gone. We are still going to have work to do, because this isn't uh, this isn't the end of the book. This is just the beginning of a new chapter on what it means to be pro-life. So there are already lawless medical professionals and activists who are mailing abortion drugs into Texas, um, circumventing our pro-life laws that are in place to protect pregnant women to protect preborn children. Um, so we're going to have to address this new issue. Uh, we're also going to have to address the fact that there are district attorneys across our country and in, in Texas that have already said that even if Roe is overturned, they're not going to um, enforce our pro-life laws. And so that's even in our backyard. Already, the Travis and Bear County district attorneys have said they will not enforce pro-life laws. So this is another new front to make sure our our laws are being fully enforced. Um, but also now is when we begin to build a pro-life society where children are valued appropriately as gifts from God. And pregnancy isn't viewed as a disability, but an opportunity for flourishing and for justice. Um, at Texas Right to Life, we wanna work um, during the next legislative session to incentivize businesses to care for and value their pregnant workers. We want to uh, protect pregnant college students so that they don't feel like there's a choice between having an education and having a child and that abortion is the answer to that problem or that, that dichotomy. Um, We want to reform foster care processes and adoption so that children can be placed with loving families. And so you can see there's a multitude now of of these areas that fall under the umbrella of what being fully pro-life means. And we no longer just have to pay defense. We can actually go on the offense of protecting um, the earliest stages of innocent human life where it's being threatened and protecting the sick and the vulnerable and people with disabilities. So as God's people, how do we respond? How do we um, react to the shift of living in the shadow of Roe v. Wade to now living in a post-Roe v. Wade world? And how do we participate in making Texas not just abortion-free but fully pro-life? So as people made in God's image and as people who are part of God's family, we have such a higher calling when it comes to how we interact with our fellow image bearers. Um, there are two things really that I want to land on for what we can do. We can pray and we can engage. And so for prayer, we need to be praying for the Supreme Court and the Dobbs decision. We have to pray for the justices' protection, for themselves, for their families, um, for their fortitude, and that they would decide with justice and with truth. We need to pray that Roe would be overturned. And we need to pray for our nation as we approach a post row world, um, that hearts would be changed, that lives would be saved, and then for those children who are going to be born and for their families. Um, and then engage. If you could go to the next slide. There are a lot of ways to engage um, with legislative efforts, with changing hearts and minds, um, in our conversations with other people, our neighbors, our friends, and on, on college campuses. And Texas Right to Life is involved in a lot of those efforts. So if you're interested, you can come talk to me after. Um, also, you can sign up for our text alerts. Um, it's on the screen there. And that's just an easy way what we alert people to when the Dobbs decision comes out and things like that. Um, But the most straightforward way that I want to encourage us to engage is through our local pregnancy resource centers. These are the centers that are on the front lines of helping women choose life and and then thrive post-birth. And there's two places right here in Georgetown that we can be involved in helping directly through volunteering with uh, your time, with your expertise, and your energy, and then through donating. Um, And and ultimately, there's a role for everyone in the pro-life movement. It's not just for policymakers and and um, people interested in politics. We also need pro-life IT people, pro-life engineers. So whatever your background, there's a role for you in the pro-life movement, and there's a need for you. This issue is close to God's heart, and I know he will give us victory in protecting pre-born children who are made in his image. And not just pre-born children, but all human beings made in his image. Um, but it's going to require vigilance and courage on our part. By God's grace, uh, we will end elective abortion in our country and restore the value of life for all, for pre-born children and their mothers and families. Um, and I'm excited to see how God's going to use his church on this journey. So thank you. Thank you
0: so much. Right, just as our ushers make their way forward as we observe community at the end here go ahead and come on down I just want to ask Rebecca one one question kind of asked it maybe a little different in the first service but how come on down how, how do you do what you do I mean you, the, the animosity you face has got to be pretty strong you're probably out of step with your generation how do you do this
3: well, um, so this is a little bit different from first service response, but at Texas Right to Life, we're an overtly Christian organization, and we have not always been that way, but we realized the fight is strong, and it's a fight of good versus evil, and so we have to be in line, and, and overtly so with God. And so we're, we prioritize our spiritual lives, and I think that's the way, because it's a fight on every front, and I'm really honored to be part of it, but um, it is hard. And now we have an opportunity to start protecting even more human life, which is exciting.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I can do that. Let's let's go ahead and bow for a moment of uh, just silent meditation and confession before we partake of the elements together. Let's just prepare our hearts to remember the body that was broken and the blood that was shed for the life.